Welcome to the Compile Podcast. This is a show where two programmers talk about anything and everything. My name is Nick Wu, and I'm the host of this podcast. In each episode, we'll have a topic, and the goal of the episode is to compile the topic down into a list of essential points for our listeners. Each guest will have their own list to compile, so then we don't always have to agree on everything. This week, we are joined by a recurring guest, uh, John.、Uh, how you doing, John? Good, good. How are you?、Excited、yeah, we, we actually haven't spoken for like six months. So yeah, I <laughs> think yeah. at least <laughs> a lot has changed.、Uh, so how have you been? I heard you 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 actually quite just moved recently though, right? I did. Yeah. So about two months back, I、um, finally officially graduated and moved out to、um, Mountain View, California, to start、uh, working full time. Yes. Uh, so uh, what company is that?、Uh, I'm working at、uh, Amazon. Okay.、Uh, AWS specifically.、But. Right, right.、Um, and is there any bit of your work、uh, that you can let me know? Um, I am currently focused on、uh, the customer-facing stuff, so sort of the UI stuff.、Mm-hmm. Um, and my team does the、uh, the database analytics and AI、um, dashboards on AWS. Well, that's very、um, comprehensive. That's sort of like. Throughout the stack, you know, you get through. It is exactly. Yeah. And there's,、uh, we own.、Uh, I'm not sure how specific I'm allowed to be, but we own a large number of、um, the dashboards on AWS. So it's been cool to get、uh, a lot of breadth from my team. Yes.、Uh, I have some brief experiences with AWS. Actually, the、uh, audio recordings of these of these podcasts are actually stored on AWS and on S3 and. Yeah, my experience was just、um, an overwhelming a lot of、uh, overwhelming amount of、um, technologies、uh, available at AWS. It's like amazing how much、uh, how much stuff that's on there, and it's just exploding. Like it, it seems like every month at least there's multiple new services. I think there's hundreds of services on AWS now. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I, I was shocked because I went to the. I went to sort of this like landing page, and I was like, "Oh, I'm just gonna load up like a storage." And there's a search. First of all, there's a search bar. There's not even like you know, there's not even like sessionized. So there's too much. It has to have a search bar, and then <laughs> <laughs> I search for storage, and then I I got like fifty results. So <laughs> yeah, it can be a little overwhelming. Yeah, that's that's a bit that's a bit crazy. Uh, anyway, uh, so congrats on the new job. Uh, actually, yeah, um, never actually said this out loud, but again, congrats on the new job. Um, yeah, well, congratulations to you. So, what what team have you landed on now that you're full time? I'm not sure we've talked much since you officially started. No, actually, yeah, because、uh, I started in last September in the Essence Power Controls team. So,、um, so you can think of our job as the waiter at a at a restaurant. So, you know, when you go to the restaurant, you can order your stuff to the to the waiter, and then you can say, "Oh, actually,、um, I'm allergic to." To nuts, so please don't put any nuts on my on my food.、Um, so what we will do is the our publishers will tell us, you know, there are stuff, there are some sort of ads they don't like. For example, people don't want、um, ads about guns on on their website, or ads about gambling. You know, that's gonna affect their their brand. And they tell us, and we tell the rest of Google to be, hey, don't show you know gun ads on this publisher, and you know. Uh, so yeah, that's that's basically what we do.、Uh, on a high level, we are doing brand safety for、uh, mm-hmm. for our publishers. 
Yeah, that seems super important. I, I know there's been a lot of um, talk about um, uh, brand safety um, in the news in the last year or two. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool to be working on something that's uh, very, uh, I guess, well known at this point. Yeah, it's the demand was was certainly very high, and you know we have a lot of the cases which are like quite interesting to work with because it, if you think about it, it's not just the fact that people don't want ads about like uh, um, guns or you know things are a little bit more sensitive there are also a use case where you know if i'm a bakery i don't want ads to i don't want ads to show on my on my website that's pointing to a different bakery in the same area because mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know um, there's a lot, of, a lot about like competitors and this is very common in the app business so you know for like one app for like a to-do app you know you might have a banner at the end that's going to reference a different to-do app and that's going to just cut into your business directly and um, that's one of our um, one of our valid use cases as well and you know uh, so working on this team you know really uh, explores all of the a lot of the business side of of how things work and um you know it's very interesting yeah it sounds super cool yeah cool uh so i I hope that's a bit of a catch up on what we do i know i haven't uh done any recordings for like six months so you probably thought i was I disappeared I died or <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, I'm still alive and we're going well. And in fact, um, this is the first podcast back and I'm going to try to kickstart uh, a regular update from now on and we'll see how that goes because I usually promise these things and they don't necessarily work. If you follow my <laughs> blogs, you know. Um, well, I'm excited. I'll keep an eye out for uh, your upcoming ones. Oh yeah, so. <laughs> now, now there's pressure on, so I have to, I have to perform <laughs> now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, so this week's uh, main topic is developer workflow, and uh, tagline is how we do software projects. So um, this might sound a little bit too broad, but you know, uh, once we get down to the specifics, it's gonna make sense to you. I promise. Uh, on a high level, this is something that people in our industry do all the time. In fact, this is literally their job where they are assigned to assigned to a um, to a project and their job is to uh, finish that project, to implement it. And um, we've, we've actually had a, a certain exposure to this in at university where they would uh, have school projects for you to work with. And it's it's supposed to mimic the um, the real life software projects, but you know they are quite different. In fact, we the first point we're gonna try to touch on is you know how exactly are they different? What are the differences that we've experienced uh, doing projects in university and and now uh, as a developer? So um, John, I think there's an interesting example I'm about to give where where mm-hmm. uh, we both took the same class in UNC taught by the same professor which is very heavy project based and um so i think back on that project that we've done actually brandon did this as well and uh (laughs) and then i i usually i sometimes think back to this project that we've done and i looked at the code and it was i don't want to piss off the 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 professor but it was a bit messy (laughs) it was a a little bit messy um and both yeah, sorry, go on. both in the one of the interesting things about it that really correlates it back between to like an industry project where it isn't just like one of the different things about universe or industry projects is you're dependent on 
code that's been written by other people. And that was my first big project in university where I had to use a lot of code written by the professor um, and getting used to dealing with his code, which was partially messy, and then trying to implement our messy code on top of it was a real learning experience. Oh yeah. I at the time we're like we have we have source control but it's a preferred it's not a required and in the end you're just left with the code base which is you know there's no version there's no history and you know it's just a blob of code and and you have to make sense of it at the end i mean after we implemented it uh, i'm sure i'm sure yeah. you know the professor had had like proper source control and proper history done before cool uh and then um this this sort of like um illustrates the point that i want to make is uh, from from what I experienced, and I think John, you can relate to this as well. Um, a lot of the projects that we've done as students are unstructured. So they're unstructured in the sense where we will get assigned to a project and and we will just do it. Uh, whereas once you join full time, you know, uh, as as a developer, you 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 are trained to think a little bit in uh, I should say in stages. So you know, you get you get a project. Uh, First of all, you know you need you need to make sure you understand what this project was supposed to be, what it what problem is it supposed to solve, and you know and then you go about the rest of the stages. Yeah, and one thing there is like in university the that step the understanding step in university you're entirely just trying to understand the technical aspect of it and um, solve the problem technically. At least the projects I had to do were almost all solving technical yeah, yeah. problems whereas in industry a major component of it is understanding the customer and the business behind it which you don't experience as much in university yeah definitely the concept of a project is also a little bit different so for for university a lot of the times you are tasked with a problem that you're about to solve where you know it's purely logical purely scientific in that in that sense where you just you write stuff uh, you write logic and uh, it's supposed to function and you know if you write the correct logic you will solve the correct problem uh, you don't you just don't get to ex expect that in in industry where you know you can come up with a really good technical solution and then uh, and then it's it doesn't solve anything like it doesn't solve the problem and oh also um, another thing is um, about you know the I should say metrics to go for so when we were in university all we care is you know the code does what it's supposed to do so for we care about correctness and you know in industry you, you also care about correctness of course uh but there's so much more than that and you know you gotta care about you know is this fast enough is this um you know is it gonna keep the customers waiting or is it gonna consume a certain amount of cpu and cost us like hundreds of dollars for uh, to AWS most likely and um, <laughs> yeah so these are there are a lot more things that you have to keep in mind uh, for industry projects and uh, com compared to university ones yeah I think I'd like to dive into this a little bit more maybe mm -hmm. um, I, I think it might be interesting to try outlining like the type of considerations that we thought about when working on the project um, in that class we had together mm -hmm. and maybe uh, so, so some of the things we had to think about was just getting the demos to work right oh we yeah just had like the end goal for that class and how we present we we kind of presented our final mm -hmm. um submission yeah. which is kind of like how you do it in 
industry, right? You build something and then you have to present it to the business owners. Mm -hmm. But the big difference there was we just made a 15-minute video and submitted it to the TA to be graded. And as long as it looked like it worked in the video, you could be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, You obviously cannot uh, fake your way through it or um, hide bugs um, in industry. No, no, no. You, yeah, people will exploit you left and right, especially if you like, if you if your website has enough traffic, then you know some of those traffic are you know attack traffic in in a sense where they trying to explore you and trying to like gain uh, gain information out of your out of your site or just uh, make your site explode uh, and then you know write your angry tweet, which also happened to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So. I hope that sort of covers a, uh, a little bit about, you know, um, the differences between uh, school projects and industry projects. For all of our listeners that's uh, still doing, still in the middle of their uh, computer science education, you know, I'm not knocking all of your school projects. I'm sure they are technically challenging, uh, but just be prepared for uh, a little bit, a little bit more once you like actually go into industry. I think it could maybe be interesting to also talk about like the other thing a lot of people that are getting computer science degrees will be doing are internships mm. and getting an idea of differences between intern projects and full-time projects. Since we we both did internships at the same company that we are now working full-time at, correct? You, you interned at Google, yeah, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so I, I maybe be interested to hear what your perspective on this was. Um, did you do internships anywhere but Google? Uh, I did all my internships in Google. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I did um, two internships at uh, a bank and one internship at Amazon. And I thought those were interesting because you actually had to work on a team and go through this whole process mm. that we're going to be talking more about. Mm. But it wasn't at the same scale I think it might be interesting to dive into a bit more about um, like the differences between an intern project and a full-time project. Yeah, yeah. Right? So like I think in the intern projects, a lot of these companies are trying to have their interns work on more like meaningful and, and work on projects that will actually be integrated into the production software. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they think, but you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And they try to tell you that uh, it will be, but oftentimes, you know, you finish the project and you leave and you don't necessarily know, um, like, what ended up happening with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess just trying to uh, think about when you're doing uh, an internship, uh, focusing on the aspects of working with a team and, like, a big aspect that's different between university and industry is you have to write code that's uh, not just for you it's for the rest of your team and for it's not just to turn in and be done with it needs to last for a long time yeah that's such a good point uh there's there's two john said like a a awesome point just now and i just want to reiterate this bit you know going from uh from my experience going from uh school to internships and then now to full-time you just feel the scale of things like go up more and more and then it kind of goes like i i don't want to say exponentially exponentially but it kind of feels like like that way from working alone or like some school projects are in teams but uh they, they won't be too big it's going to be like three to four people 
uh, to like working in in as an intern in a, in a large team, probably six to eight people, and then working full time and having to deal with you know the rest of the company. And you know this just feels a lot different. It actually it it actually perfectly reflects the point that um what's the what's the book there was what's the uh book that uh the UNC professor wrote. Oh, I don't actually know the oh, name Mystical of this book. Oh, Mystical Memory. There um, we go. Um, yes. Yeah, so, you know, in in his book, he says, like, you know, as you grow the number of programmers or number of work, the number of people, you know, it doesn't, the productivity doesn't grow um, on the same on the same level. It actually grows a, a lot slower because you have all these communication, all of this um, lag time, so to speak, in between. Any pair of people. And another point that... Um, that John just said was, you know, you should expect your stuff to last, uh, and you should expect your code to go f- beyond uh, the submission day, so to speak, and and that's that's true for you know intern projects, and you wanna you wanna sort of think about you know after you leave, people the people in your team are going to be uh, working with the code you wrote, so just be mindful of that and. Once you join full time, once you work on a real life project, you know there there is no there is no submission time. Like it it will forever be on until the company decides to shut it down, which is probably never. And yeah, so there's a lot about you know writing code, um, making sure you know you are you're you're doing things that you know that won't come back. Like you're not you're not taking any shortcuts or any sort of like dirty shortcuts, which is gonna like bite you in the butt later. Because it's mm-hmm. your butt. It's not somebody else's butt. So <laughs> That's another really interesting point is like shortcuts because I don't know what your experience is, but in industry, you still do sometimes have to take shortcuts because mm-hmm. you have deadlines and you have launches you need to meet and you have customer expectations you need to meet. Yeah. You can't write 100% perfect code 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the biggest challenges about full-time work, I think, is having a good understanding of when it's appropriate to take uh, shortcuts or to make something slightly hacky yeah. and when it's worth doing the hackier solution and then coming back and iterating on it mm-hmm. um, if needed. Yeah, definitely. That's actually an amazing point. That's actually one of the points I was going to make a little bit later, but yeah, cool. Um, so another thing I want to cover, I, I sort of said this point before where um, you come into industry and then now you have a procedure or sort of a framework on how to work these software projects, sort of like a meta thing. Um, so I want to cover that bit a little bit more. I, I'm sure like uh, for a lot of uh, uh, people listening, the, these will be like stuff they've already learned in school or uh, or in the books, but I just want to cover them very quickly. Um, so yeah, sorry. Well, I'll let you I'll let you describe them first, and then I want to follow up on that. Did you it, like if you talked about these in university? Okay, cool. So uh, normally you will have um, one or two main um, ways to work, go about this. One of them is a waterfall. You can think of it as a, a waterfall going from top to bottom. And uh, the way it was described is, you know, you define your stages and you just do them one by one in sequence. And in fact, a, a very important uh, characteristic of this is you don't start the second step until you completely finish the first step. Uh, the second sort of approach is is more called an agile approach, where you have you have a rough idea of what things are supposed to be, and then you define a 
a um, sort of a bare bone version of that and then you go through the stages then you reiterate and then you reiterate and you do this until you're happy with the uh, the final result or what you've gotten uh, yeah so these are the two uh, main sort of um, approaches uh, to software projects and John what's your uh, what's your takeaway on this bit yeah, so I've actually never really working on a team that follows a waterfall practice. I mean, a waterfall practice. Mm -hmm. um, all the teams I've worked with do more the agile approach, where you you have a set, you have like a backlog of things that need to get done, right? And yeah. you kind of prioritize those items and just work through them as fast as you can. And they're sort of compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. So as you finish one of these smaller subtasks you can sort of do um, a, a related thing continuous deployment where you know instead of waiting for the whole full product to be complete you can release components of the product as you go yes which is super valuable um to the customer because they can see uh continuous improvements from your continuous deployments without having to wait for you to finish the whole thing yeah um do you have any experience with waterfall or have you mostly done agile as well that's a good question and um for i would say for a lot of the projects that we were that I, i'm doing right now it's sort of a mixture of both because you think about you know a, a product and you definitely want to have all of the uh, good things from agile you want to be continuously delivering value and you want to like always tackle the most important thing and it, that definitely works when you have um sub like small enough tasks to be carried out in a matter of days but when you have a, a more complex to, uh, problem or a complex feature to implement uh, which is going to probably take up weeks or even months then it's more likely we will uh that i personally will go with a little bit more waterfally approach where you know i will do my i'll do my research or do my design i'll do my and then i'll go through like all the uh, tasks to be carried out um but I will say um, this isn't exactly waterfall because you know everybody cuts corners and you know that's what we do. So, <laughs> so that's why yeah. you know when we do this, we do you know during the during the waterfall, you know at some point we we'll say oh, but we probably can't we can't really do all of this uh, within the timeline that we have. So we're gonna do a subset that act that still works and then reiterate and then we go back to the agile thing. So you you see like this is sort of like an interplay mm -hmm. of both approaches yeah i think it comes down to the core problem is some components aren't useful without the other components right so if you have some big product like there's your ideal version of the product with everything perfectly implemented that obviously you can never actually have and then there's sort of the minimum viable product mm -hmm. i guess and um and then there's sort of the task to get you from nothing to the minimum viable product yep and then from the minimum viable product to the perfect version. Mm -hmm. And I think, I, I don't know what it's like on your team, but I'm currently working on um, a new service that is all internal to Amazon right now. Um, so we are doing, we're trying to get to the minimum viable product point right now. Yeah. And so we are sort of more like what you talked about, where um, we obviously have to have these large goals that are possibly months long to... Um, complete the core part of the product 
But then there's also, you know, small improvements you can do on top of the core part of the product that are more like um, stepping towards that ideal version of it. Yeah, definitely. And uh, just to give a little bit more compa- uh, context on this bit. So our team, our product uh, is already out there. It's in the world. So the publisher controls uh, is there, but we're lacking things. Like we're lacking uh, capabilities and and features and you know things we can that actually brings value but they are in the they're in a bit of more you know we've already got a minimum product that works and now we're at we're trying to take a second step towards you know the ultimate goal and and doing this uh, means you know we we actually like take a million like little steps and we sort of bundle them together into put into like uh, bigger projects and uh, and then we work th- and we work them individually. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it does. And I think this is interesting. It t- kind of ties into the next point on our on our kind of topic list of um, sort of the planning. Yeah. Um, and maybe if we go back and compare how planning works in university versus in industry, mm-hmm. uh, I think there's some interesting stuff there. So you were sort of saying, so when you're planning an industry, you have to figure out what is the minimum viable product, mm-hmm. right? That's that's not something that like exists independent of your kind of opinions and planning. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you can't wait until you have that ideal perfect product to release it to a customer because mm-hmm. like you're never going to get to that point. So you have to be able to define some minimum viable product, which isn't something you really do in university, right? It's either the project is done or it's not done, yeah. or you're you know you've completed some milestone or you haven't, right? Mm-hmm. There there isn't the idea of um, what is good enough to let people start using this? Yeah, and definitely uh, um, another point I want to try to make is you know just going back to what we did in in uh, the distributed system class where you know we are given a project and we know what we want to do like we would, we know what we eventually want to be, but what happens is we we just like we we just shoot for that like there is no there's no sort of a bit of our planning that goes oh let me do like a dirty version or like a simple version of this that works first and then i'll improve upon it uh at least for me a lot of the times it was just like, oh we're gonna do this communication protocol let's just do it and <laughs> and yeah so um that that's probably one thing that i could have done differently and it actually would have helped uh you know with with the project uh that we have in that class you know, doing doing just spending a little bit more time thinking about you know how I'm going to how am I going to plan this? Um, am I going to do a, like a one time sweep where I just shoot for the goal directly, or am I going to do what, what I just said where you know I'm gonna do a simple version and upon uh, and then improve upon that? You know, these are the things that you know you might think about you might go through this process and still think oh i actually don't have time to iterate and then i'm just gonna shoot for the uh shoot for the goal directly but it's important to have that uh process to to think about you know do we want to commit to this instead of just going for it straight away because you know there are some cases where if you are dealing with uh the perfect example is some sort of uh some sort of web page the design never is there's never a stable design it will change if you shoot for that and then you and then you implement you write your code in a way that only works with that with that layout or that sort of particular interaction and then the designer says oh we're gonna change this then you know you're kind of screwed <laughs> you have to start over 
right? Yeah. Whereas if you start with a minimum product and then you say, oh, this is what we have now. It doesn't really fit, uh, fit with the uh, with the interaction pattern that um, that our designer wants, but we can improve, uh, uh, improve upon it. In fact, we have the flexibility to switch to any sort of interaction pattern that uh, that is better for our user potentially. So that's to me yeah. sounds a lot better than uh, than you know just go for just go for the goal straight off. Yeah, yeah, and that's part of like learning how to write code with the team and, and learning how to write code that you can maintain in the long run because you do have to like even once you've submitted it you have to go back to the same code and be able to uh, uh, you know update it and adjust it based on customer feedback or um, developments in the industry or, or whatever these new changes are yeah um, the code code is always alive really mm -hmm. um, and I also want to go back a little bit to the project we did sort of the specific example because i think that actually was a, a good opportunity um to do something similar to industry because the project in that class and if anyone has the opportunity to so let me describe the, the, the project a little bit um essentially we were in this distributed systems class and it was sort of a semester-long project or a, a large part of the semester yeah. and we were implementing different um distributed communication protocols, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, the nice part about it that sort of correlates to industry is we had to implement all these different protocols within the same project. There was like a UI that we had to interact with and um, all of the underlying communication had to work within that same project. So you kind of did have to think about um, okay, I'm implementing, you know, communication protocol A, and I know in a month I'm going to have to implement communication protocol B. I need to make sure I set this whole thing up in a way where I can come back and make changes and make additions. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of a virtue of that class that I, I personally didn't really get in other courses. Mm -hmm. um, so getting that experience of, like, the semester-long project with changing goals or milestones um, is really important. Yeah, that's such a good point. And that I think it's I didn't quite get in during the class while we were doing it. So I was I was shooting for the goal. So I so I, again, like, um, you know, the the whole project, like on a large scale is we're going to implement communication A, uh, protocol A, protocol B, protocol C. And John here uh, knows that, you know, I'm not I'm going to write communication A in a way that it does not block me too much to add B in. Mm -hmm. Whereas I did, I did a stupid thing where you know I just made a work and I didn't, I didn't quite think about you know how B and C is gonna look at. And then when B and C actually comes over, actually came over, you know, I did a lot of refactoring. I had to do a lot of refactoring just to get back to the point where you know integrating that in is even possible. Yeah. Did because like eventually what we need to do is we're gonna show this demo program with a tuner so you can say oh i want communication a over b and c and and then you can demo the thing and then you can switch to b live and then do a thing again you know those are the things that you know if you embed it if you embed it in a way that doesn't work you know uh doesn't work in process then it's just not, the demo is never gonna work yeah I, so in in hindsight did you think that was a good learning for you having to do that refactoring or was it not that valuable it is it definitely is uh and then that's actually another point that uh that we're going to try to make now is how do you how do you go about design 
how'd you go about doing the design because this goes straight after the plan it actually ties in with the planning where you know you're gonna realize this point about you know the thing the task the goal is never going to be done it's never going to finish but we, we're just gonna move incrementally close closer to that and then effect, that affects your design then you will say oh then i'm just not gonna write like i'm just not gonna design something that's like too strict or makes it impossible for me to change direction um in the future and uh, i i'm quite sure like I, i'm pretty sure this sounds very abstract and hard to hard to sort of uh use in real life but um just keep that thought in mind when you are doing doing this project and um you know at some point you it will make sense to you and i i was wondering john do you have like uh, apart from this topic do you, uh, uh, this project do you have a different examples that uh, maybe illustrates that yeah so with the kind of design let me give a specific example from my work that happened last week actually um so you know we're still in this stage where it's it, all internal we haven't released anything yet so there are um still design decisions being made um and my team works uh, basically there are three teams that are working on my project um and something that I've had to experience is when another team makes a change that impacts me because when you're in university or in an internship, you're usually focused on just what your team is doing and you don't have mm -hmm. to worry as much about what other teams are doing or how other teams changes might affect you. But as soon yeah, as you're very, yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, it's very sandbox. Yes. And it's like you were saying, yeah, it's it's growing exponentially. You know, once you start in industry, you really do have to start worrying about the company as a whole, as you said earlier. Um, so essentially, um, the one of the teams we worked with decided they needed to redo the design of their API, which oh. to them doesn't seem, and, and this is something we need to have some communication on, um, and, and it goes back to that man hours thing. Um, so they decided they needed to make some changes to their API which isn't a big deal to them because they sort of, they own their whole product and they can um, kind of just go through their code base and almost control F or do some automatic refactoring and change some names or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this obviously is going to have um, a more detrimental impact on the teams that depend on them because now we have to go in and refactor our code because of changes they've done because mm -hmm. not enough focus was put into the design process early. Um, so it's not something that everyone always gets right, you know, and you do have to be prepared for this type of thing to happen. Uh, and that's obviously not something that you really get an opportunity to experience um, working on teams of at most, you know, four people or five people or whatever in university or in an internship. No, no, definitely not. And that's that's such a good point. And I actually got a joke to make, but, uh, you know, it, it might get that in uni where you have a professor that changes their minds every now and then, you know. <laughs> yeah, like we kind of did with uh, that distributed systems project. That code that code was changing and breaking. <laughs> <laughs> As, yeah, and um, just going back to this, but I, I actually, I might do uh, another uh, topic on design only because this, is, this, is, this goes very deep. And yes. there's like books and books and books about these, uh, about these topics. And uh, just a quick point I, I want to make, uh, like a quick sort of tip that you can use in design is before you think about, you know, any, uh, you, have, you can just think about your high level components, like a blob of things that does something. And a very important point is think about the communication or the interface between between components. What is what is it going to accept and what is it going to output? 
and how how does the whole thing work you know these these are the things that you want to get down like as like as quickly as possible because once it sticks it's it's very hard to change like exactly what happens in uh in the example that john gave if you define an api then you change it whoever depends on your api will break yep there's no there's no question to that it will break yeah and if you only have you know one team or something that's dependent on it like we do right now it's not a it's not the end of the world but as soon as you release it to the public and whoever can be using your API, you cannot make any changes to it because mm-hmm. you have an unknown number of people that are dependent on it um, that all will have their stuff break. So yeah, at some point it has to be set in stone and you have to be happy with it. Yeah, definitely. So uh, another thing I want to point out like in, in, these, in these main stages is another thing that you might not really get in university, but you, you want to watch out for uh, you know, going forward is apart from your code, there's also code reviews, which is like a very big thing for all the companies that you're going to. Uh, unreviewed code is is not code; it's just it's just ideas. John, do you, like do you have any like uh, crazy stories on this one, um, uh, or or do you want to expo- uh, expand on that a little bit more? I have two stories that come to mind. I'll give one that I think is just generally applicable. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously. Like you said, code isn't code until it's been reviewed, but getting people to review your code can be a little difficult because obviously everyone is focused on the problem they need to solve, and getting reviews done is important, and it's everyone's job to do code reviews, but it can be hard to prioritize this, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about prioritizing um, various things later, but you have to be kind of ready when you come into industry to know that everyone has their priorities and Mm -hmm. one of your responsibilities as the writer of the code is to get it reviewed and it is going to take some pushing sometimes at least in my experience it's going to take pushing to get other people to contribute you know to review your code and that's sort of just a fact of life that you have to get used to so i'm i'm constantly bothering people and telling them you know hey i've got this code review published you need to review it yeah yeah, we did. We do that all the time as well. Not not recently in my team because we are sort of confined in in uh, in one team. Like all the code changes are sort of um, isolated, so it's easier to review within the team. But I've also done some projects with you know teams in Mountain View, where like eight hours apart. I'm getting like <laughs> they they won't be able to review when I'm like sound asleep, and you know this it you know. I actually really enjoyed that. I in my internship, um, I was in Seattle, and uh, the person I worked the most with with was in Berlin. So I would do all my code during the day, publish a code review uh, as I was leaving, you know, for my day's work, or maybe two or three code reviews, depending on how I broke up my code, uh-huh. um, just for the day's work, and then come back and first thing in the morning, I'd have my code review done, and I can go in and make iterations on it. And yeah. um, usually, we'd have like an hour or two overlap in the morning, so he would. Um, you know, if I if I got in and could make revisions really quickly, he could um, approve my revisions to my code review early first thing in the morning, and it was just it was a very nice process because I'd publish it and overnight it would get done. Because he was, you know, one of the things you learn to appreciate is people that are good at code reviews, good at prioritizing, oh, like yeah. supporting the team. Because um, some people are are a lot like, oh, I need to focus on my thing, code reviews. I'll do it if they bother me enough. And then there are people that are very good at prioritizing the needs of the team as a whole uh, Mm -hmm. which means doing code reviews um, in a reasonable time so 
that coworker was great because I, you know, I do that. I publish the code review and it'd be there first thing in the morning. Yeah, that's good. I I, I was gonna give the opposite uh, point because you know <laughs> it works when the writer is on is on uh, the US side, but it doesn't work with you know if I'm writing code to be reviewed in Montreal. Mm. Uh, well, it does work, but you know there there's more lag time. Um, yeah, a oh, good point. To that. And then uh, this, I actually had a very funny story about this where for for one of the projects um not this one uh like a couple quarters back we have this project with mountain view and it's actually important for us to have some have more time overlapping because we were still eyeing out some of the designs and so what i had to do is i had to stay at the office till like eight so that i oh, wow. so, so we can align with the with the mountain view time but the the helpful bit with that with that is i don't have to come in as early so <laughs> Yeah, it's you know it it all, it all comes around. And yeah, <laughs> I I don't know. Is that something you'd be interested in talking about? This maybe be unrelated, and we can sidebar it. But yeah, yeah um, we... I think like uh, work times are interesting. I like people that prefer to come in earlier or later. Um, I think this is maybe unrelated, but um, that's something that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, actually, have a uh, we're gonna have another topic on this one. Uh, um, in the future, cool. uh, pop it with John again. So you know, <laughs> if you like John. And you like the topic, you know, subscribe to the podcast. Yeah, uh, and then um, the last bit of the uh, the main stages I want to cover is, you know, your code is all written, it's all reviewed, it's all checked in. And the last bit, you know, you probably think it's going to be easy and it always comes back and it's rolled out. And this, this is the process where you bundle all of your code and make it publicly usable to your customers. And... Um, the the reason I said this this might be uh, difficult is first of all there's also there's like infinite amount of production issues that you can run into, mm-hmm. um, and then um, for even for like uh, school projects for school projects it's a slightly easier because you're probably just gonna su- uh, submit a platform there's probably something like ready to use or you you're just gonna give a git uh, a GitHub link uh, for the project and that's probably just it. And for like for industry, when you're trying to get a reusable product out to people, um, there's a lot of things you got you have to go through. You gotta go through, make sure all of your tests are sound, uh, or then like not crazily flaky. Uh, and then you gotta make sure you have all of the uh, all of the main pro- like there's a lot of sanity checking, and then you wrote you actually wrote it out. Then you have to monitor it and uh, make sure everything is good, no exceptions. And if there are exceptions, you have to fix them. And then you gotta continuously listen. To feedback and um, I I understand this these these things might be very distant from uh, from pe- uh, our listeners who are still in university this might feel very you know weird and trust me this is something you will run into and it's better to have that mental uh, preparation right do, do you agree on that bit I do 100% I actually had to do my first um, big rollout last week and it was a much more stressful process than I imagined, mm-hmm. in part because obviously in your day-to-day work, you're dependent on other team services. But when you're doing a deployment, at least at uh, AWS, you, you know, your number of dependencies increases a lot because um, you need all the dependencies on all the infrastructure. Yep. And... Um, you know, with these world scale products that these companies work on now, it's not just like, oh, I'm going to publish it to the server and it'll be good. It's like, no, you need, you know, your 
huge amounts of infrastructure in, you know, however many regions you're launching the product in around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think AWS is like, I don't know, there's more than a dozen different regions um, uh, that you have to deploy to. Um, Whoa, so you have to be dependent <laughs> on, there's, there's a lot. Um, so you're dependent on all those regions um, working and you need the correct approvals, right? Because you can't just be pushing. Something we're not really going to get into today is, and I had mentioned earlier, is kind of this continuous deployment and continuously delivering um, improvements to the customer. But you obviously can't just be pushing out whatever to the customer, mm-hmm. right? You need to have um, checks and balances to make sure yep. stuff is getting deployed at the right time. So you have to go through this whole approval process. Um, and usually there are kind of timelines you have to reach, at least within um, Amazon. You have to you know, have all your approvals ready two days before you publish or something like that for, for a, a big, big launch. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's a much more intensive process than you might think when you're thinking that it's similar to just pushing it up to the school server and letting the teacher deal with it. Yeah, definitely. This is, uh, again, you know, there's a lot more sanity checking than you realize there are, you know, both automatic and manual. And like, we can expand on this, like, a, 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 we can expand a full series on just like rollout and productionization. And yeah, <laughs> definitely. And rollout also is one of these things that like, the code it never ends like once you roll it out you're not done you have to continuously monitor it and you know someone has to be on call to make sure if something you know if a if a server dies or something mm-hmm. that someone is is or that the the backup server comes online correctly or or whatever it is you know you have to make sure it doesn't go down yeah definitely and then you know you might set up monitoring and then there there might be alerts firing and then you have to mm-hmm. find out why it's firing like if it's just something you do or it might be like a like a ddos some like externally or you know there, there's a lot more things that could come in and then this really uh really illustrates the point where you know your project never actually ends you know what even after rollout you gotta monitor it and then you might come back and do like another iteration and you know this never it's a it's a never ending um uh, thing which sounds bad but you know this is the process where you will continue to deliver value so it will not like it, it's not a, like something that just drags on and drags on and crush you as a human being it's uh <laughs> it's a it's a thing that you uh you have to keep in mind uh as you go get, as you go along and then you know you got to make sure you are mindful to be uh de- still delivering values into these into yeah. this product and even after like months years after the initial uh rollout yeah well what we call that it I think most people call it, so that's like your operations load, right? Yeah. Like the amount of continuous work you have to do to make something just continue working. Mm-hmm. Um, like once you've fully written it and fully deployed it, you still have this operations load you have to have to make sure it, it continuously works. Mm-hmm. And managing that is another big aspect of industry that you don't get. Um, I mean, it's it's just all this stuff we've talked about, but it's it's managing and making sure your operations load is maintainable mm-hmm. because, you know, you can't be working, you know, 20 hours a week on um, just making sure your stuff is still working. Um, so building that infrastructure and whatnot to have your operations load be maintainable. Yeah, definitely. And then I, I think you meant to say 20 hours a day. You said 20 hours a week. I was like, what? <laughs> well, just on operations. Oh. <laughs> Are you working 20 hours a week just on operations? <laughs> oh. <laughs> then you might have trouble. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> I was like, 20 hours a week, that sounds awesome. Uh, yeah. 
uh yeah so those are the main stages uh, i hope you know you can sort of uh get some of the stuff out of this or we're just gonna go through them again uh so you start with planning where you define where you want to go and how much you're gonna go uh with this budget uh like within the timeline um then you go into design uh, and then we skip this bit actually you're going to coding but you you know this is sort of like you you gotta have to code at some point uh you go to coding uh with code reviews which we talked about and then eventually you go to the rollout and actually i missed a point here uh missed a stage here uh which is testing and this is sort of part of the coding process and we're gonna do a in-depth uh, uh episode a later a little bit later yeah so uh, these are the main stages that's usually involved in uh, industry uh, projects. These are sort of what you might might be expecting if you are getting just about to get into industry or you are uh, fairly new. I'm sure I'm gonna get blast for like some senior engineers. It's, it's not a thing. And uh, yeah, so uh, I hope that's useful. Can I just throw? I just want to throw out an action item for our listeners, which is if you um, are in a class that has a large semester-long project or you're in an internship try to keep in mind these stages of real like industry production and see if you can kind of try to model it in your um, university work because mm -hmm. it'll be valuable to have experience with it yeah. when you're um, first starting out it'll make your first few months a lot easier oh yeah that's such a good point and yeah definitely um do try to apply them this might seem like a bureaucracy thing but you know they are they exist bureaucracy exists for a reason first of all and then secondly these are actually you know structures that would give you value and increase your productivity uh in the long run so um definitely uh keep that in mind when you are going about your next project maybe like even for another great opportunity to experiment with this is for your side projects when you're just like doing something out of passion i have a problem where i when i'm doing side projects out of passion i tend to screw all the stuff and then just <laughs> just follow my heart and I, i'm uh asking you to not do that and try to try to use these framework and try to use these stages that's already been tested in the field try just try to use them and give them a shot and see if they work and you know you can another thing is you can also tune it to your liking because you can oh because i since i work alone there's not going to be any code reviews and uh we're going to skip that but i'm going to double down on testing or uh, i'm going to put more putting more effort into designing a, a proper rollout and uh with a lot of monitoring with a lot of you know safe uh like safeguarding and make sure like no bad version is accidentally pushed out or stuff like that you know yeah i'm, I'm actually going to go back and take issue with the no code reviews thing because i think even on your side projects just trying to take advantage of like one like version control which i think you should be doing on anything you're writing because otherwise it's going to be too easy to shoot yourself in the foot mm. and i think there is a difference between coding and reviewing your code and even on your side projects you can take time to take a step back and just look over all the code you've written and ask yourself if someone else had to come in and look at this, does it make sense and is it maintainable? Yeah. I think that's still something you can do working by yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I take back that point. Um, you know, uh, definitely do, do what John says. You know, he's, he's more <laughs> experienced in this bit than I am and uh, I'm also still learning. And uh, yeah, so, so, you know, um, do you try to like go back and just pretend you are reviewing this code and uh, and then this will also be your experience to like practice reviewing code uh, which you also be doing because you know code reviews are you know 
uh, reciprocally, right? You you get people's reviews and you also need to review it for other people. So yeah, and these and these also like thinking like these are bureaucracy these steps, but they're also kind of skills you can improve on. So um, don't think of spending time on this in university as wasted time. It's getting a jump on improving your skills on these things. Mm -hmm. Definitely cool. Uh, I I think we are close to the uh to the end here. Uh, we're going to try to compile it down and. My, I only just have two points to make here um, from everything that we talked about. One of them is university projects are not the same as industry projects and in a lot of different ways. And secondly, whatever projects you're doing, be it university side projects or like a real life project, you can use this opportunity to practice having uh, a uh, an actual framework of tackling these software projects uh, out of the out of the tips and out of the example. Uh, um, stages that we've given today. Well put. I agree completely. Yeah. Do you have any other points to make? I think you summarized it really well. I think that's a good summary of what we've discussed. Cool. So that's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much, John, for coming back on again. I know it's super early in the Bay Area. Yeah, you had you have to come <laughs> like coming on a Saturday. And thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, sure thing. It was a pleasure. It's great talking with you. Okay, I actually almost forgot about this. There is a last section that we always do on this product uh, on this podcast is pick and plug. You know, mm. uh, where every week each of us will try to recommend something um, that's not necessarily for tech, but you know, just good in general. Uh, that's have positive impact on our lives and or shameless plug something. Uh, so, uh, John, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Yeah, so I, I didn't have something to recommend because I was bad and didn't do prep and think about it. So instead, I'm going to plug um, a project I'm working on. Uh, if you like podcasts and you like learning about stuff, um, me and my friend Steve do a podcast, The Discomfortable Zone, Discomfortable Zone, uh, which is a podcast about just learning about random things. Um, and we sort of have a discussion uh, about random topics uh, and learn a bit more about it. We've talked about um, Marie uh, Kundo and the Kundo effect. Uh, we've talked about um, big data. Uh, if you're interested in technology, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can find us wherever podcasts are sold. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Uh, where can I find this podcast? It's on YouTube or or uh, on iTunes or on iTunes. I don't think we have it on YouTube right now. We're also on Facebook. Uh, the discomfortable zone. Okay, so the discomfortable zone uh, yes. is the shameless plug for the week, and <laughs> uh, I don't really have anything to recommend necessarily. Uh, I just moved actually uh, last week to a different flat, uh, which is a little bit bigger, and um, I recommended taking a walk because the new flat I'm moving down to is a little bit further to the office. I have to walk around 20 to 25 minutes, which is still like relatively short compared to mm -hmm. most of my colleagues commute. And it was amazing how much I can get, you know, out of the walk to the office and from the office back, just, you know, thinking about things. Or if I have the, if I have my headphones with me, I would just put on some uh, podcast episode and just listen on the way. It's such a good method to get into a state of reflection and thinking and because you have to walk so you're not like completely idle so your mind still have to like work a little bit to make sure you walk and then it has the rest of the rest of the power just to reflect on you know what's happened today and what you know what what do i feel and why do i feel this way 
and you know if you haven't tried this out you know definitely try it out on some local parks if you can this is something you know i find to be very helpful in my personal life and i definitely recommend trying that out for uh, all of our listeners to be honest yeah, I'm a huge proponent of any way to get to work other than driving, uh, especially uh, something that involves walking or biking. So I'm all for that as well. Yeah, cool. So again, thank you very much, John, for coming on to the podcast. Uh, it's been amazing to discuss all of this uh, in detail with you. And also because we share some experiences, so it's super helpful for me as well. Yeah, so again, yeah. thanks for coming on. and. Thank you so much. We hope to get you back some point, you know, if you're not too busy with your own podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and I'd love to come back sometime. Yeah, cool. So for all of our audiences, you can find our podcast on YouTube, Google Play and also iTunes. Um, you might not be able to find it straight away. Try to use just search for the compile podcast and you should be able to find it. And if you have any comments on what we've talked about today, if you have a different um, uh routine of going about your software projects or if you have just anything you want to talk to us please comment on anything or just tweet at me my tweet is always on the description and just let me know get in touch and uh we hope to see you soon and thank you thank you for listening bye